Hello. This episode of Two Fat Expats is brought to you by Fat Expats, our new expat magazine. If you're wondering how to get a copy of the mag, which is out next month, head on over to twofatexpats.com and you'll see an email sign up and we'll hook you up and show you how to get it. Just a little side note, this uh, episode was recorded on Tuesday the 3rd of March um, and we talked a little bit about the coronavirus again. We had a catch up with Susan who's in China and Eva who's a doctor also in China and at that, so we sort of give you some numbers etc. So who knows, by the time you listen to this <laughs> it could have made its way to Mars. It could all be over, who knows. Anyway, uh, catch up soon, here's the podcast. Bye now. Hello, Nikki Moffat. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Jessie Rice. How are you this fine Doha day? Oh, I'm good. I'm good, except for a few technical problems that you and I have had. Uh, I think I think people deserve the visual of we started this podcast. We, we attempted to start this podcast five minutes ago in a different room, or I was in a different room. All sorts of network issues. Decided I would quickly move to a different room where we could get to a different network. I've now got a microphone on top of about three boxes and I'm sitting on the floor in my pyjamas. At the end of the bed, but it consequently looks like I'm naked to you because all you've got is my head and shoulders. <laughs> well, luckily I've still got my winter cardigan on. So you can tell oh, oh, I bet you can't wait for some warm weather. Is there is there light at the end of the tunnel in Hamburg at the moment? Is it is it warming up? Uh, you know, we haven't had a really cold winter. We just had a really regularly dreary one and yesterday was absolutely stunning and I stopped on my way to work and took photos of the flowers didn't smell any but I took photos so it was sunny and there were bulbs popping up and it felt very spring-like and then today it's just killed our hopes and dreams with rain but you know that's <laughs> and Nikki where I can't remember I reckon it was when I was in Australia a few weeks ago you and I were talking about the coronavirus and weather and have you been told this as well that that when it starts to heat up in Europe they are better conditions because what we're being told in the Middle East is that our Middle East summer will just kill all coronavirus hopes because it just doesn't survive in that sort of hot 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 heat that it thrives in cold cold weather um, have you heard this theory as well? I've heard the theory, but I'm not 100% sure it's going to be right. It depends because it depends what comes coming out of Asia right now, right, because it is still hot there and in parts of Asia. Sorry, Asia is a big generalisation. But places like Indonesia, Thailand, yeah, those places are actually still warm. They're not cool. Oh, but having sorry, Nikki, haven't you heard? The Indonesians have told us they've only had two cases. <laughs> saying it will be interesting to see in the next four to six weeks if that remains the same and if it yeah. does then probably we'll all pin our hopes on summer yes but then of course the Australians they're buggered <laughs> we're not laughing we're laughing at the ridiculous now I just say I am into homeschooling now so our school has shut down this week because unfortunately over the weekend we had a parent test positive with coronavirus 
And so the school is being shut for two days to evaluate what to do and to speak to the various departments. Hang on. So the parent has coronavirus, but the child also has? The child is being tested and we're waiting for the test results. And the school was shut as a precaution oh. because... Because you can't have 800 parents call the principal about something and not have the principal have to act in some way. I really, really do feel a lot of empathy for the principal and the school board, who I'm friends with the chairman of the board, and it's been a very stressful time. But what happened was that the parent was tested but the child had socialised with the, with the school community. So... There are a lot of parents whose children were in that situation who were uh, concerned. So that's what we're waiting for the test results for the child, which is probably going to be negative because a lot of children haven't been catching it. So that's also the statistics we're getting. Okay. So I think this is the perfect time to have our update from Susan, who is on the ground, as they say, (laughs) in China. So we spoke to Susan a couple of weeks ago and she told us where she was at and and for those who listened to our last episode, you would have heard, we we kind of had two interviews. We had the first one where everything was kind of looking okay. Her daughter was getting on the plane from Canada and coming back to them in China. She figured the schools would be open in a couple of weeks, ruddy, ruddy, rah, and then within 24 hours everything kind of escalated and changed and so her daughter was staying in Canada with relatives and they were kind of waiting it out to see what was going to happen. So I sent her a note to say sort of checking in how's things and uh, she said, well, they're definitely not back to normal but they are slowly changing. So she's in Ningbo and she said that they've only had 157 cases in total, no deaths and the majority of cases have been cured and discharged. Uh, They now have a QR code and Nikki, you and I would know from when we went to Shanghai, those QR codes, the whole world in China, well, all of China runs on QR codes and um, yes, and she said they have one on their phone daily that allows them out for supplies each day. They went to the mall the other day and uh, they were probably one of about five other shoppers in the mall. Um, she said schools have said March 16th for a return, but she sort of has it on good authority. It's going to be more March 23rd, but they've really just been waiting for a fixed date and she's pretty sure that's just not going to happen right now. Her daughter's meant to be flying back in a few couple of weeks um she said she's been thriving with family she's had lots of encouragement from her teachers with her online studies and commendations because those who listened last week would know that her daughter's in year 12 so it's um it's tricky uh okay she said but with the time difference and um the great in-person schooling using zoom and other platforms it's she said it's just going to be so much easier once she's back in the same time zone um she said she had friends who were vacationing in Japan and were putting off returning and they they finally decided to return but the Chinese government has just announced that anyone who returns from Italy, Japan or South Korea will have a full 14-day in-house quarantine. Um, so she said they've decided to go to Thailand for a few weeks <laughs> because, I mean, why wouldn't you too if you've, if you've got to sit at home for 14 days? And this is the conversation my husband and I have been having about returning to Australia because... I am meant to go back, you know, just before spring break. Our spring break happens at the end of March. 
And, you know, we have a whole lot of stuff planned with our other children in that time of there's, you know, a head of the river for rowing and, you know, there's big family catch-ups and dinners that have already been organised and whatever. And it, it has occurred to both of us of, well, how does it work if we return to Australia for holidays, inverted commas, and we're in quarantine? Well, but how many cases, see, I, this is what I don't think, I don't really understand. How many cases are there in Qatar versus how many cases there are in Adelaide? Yes. So in Qatar, Australia reports by state. So we have a fascinating scenario here in Qatar at the moment. I am absolutely intoxicated with this news, uh, which came via our in-house Uber driver. <laughs> and that is that, you know, obviously uh, Iran is um is really struggling with the coronavirus it's not it's not a laughing matter of that they seem to have you know uh, it was a 50 percent increase in 24 hours yesterday i heard and they have the highest death rate as well um and some would maybe argue that that could be the health system and that they're in trouble with the embargoes um and just don't have the facilities for their health care or others are saying that it's because the government just hasn't cracked down on isolating people and that you know people are still going to the mosque and and doing you know having large get-togethers um but obviously in Qatar we have a strong relationship with Iran and it's not unusual to meet Qataris who are married to Iranis or you know they're part of the family you can actually go to a certain part of Qatar and wave to the people in Iran because you just look across the water and there it is so um I sounded like oh who was she the Laura Palin yes I can see them from my kitchen. <laughs> Anyhow, not a laughing matter. But what the story is in Qatar of what's happening at the moment is we have a hotel very close to the airport and it is usually if you fly into Doha and you miss your connecting flight, it's usually where your friendly travel agent will put you. It's a five-star hotel close to the airport miss your connecting flight, you go and stay there. It's also a, a huge hotel for pilots and air staff and whatever, and it's got, you know, great restaurants. It's be it's beautiful. Um, but they, it is now being called Ground Zero. <laughs> and supposedly any uh, people flying back in from Iran are on in quarantine there for 14 days and I have heard via our trusty Uber driver that um, Uber drivers have been told they are not to go anywhere near this hotel for drop-offs and pickups because I imagine there would be many people who live in Qatar who would get told that they were going into quarantine there who would think I'm not staying here do you know I'm not quarantining so I, I would understand if they call an Uber to pick them up. Exactly, <laughs> wouldn't you? And I'm, but let's, let's say, but it's fascinating about how different countries are, are handling it yes. and what they're doing. So, in here in Germany, if you suspect that you have coronavirus, you may not go to your doctor's surgery. You call a special number, yes. and they'll come and pick you up and they'll deal with yes. you. And I just uh, watched last night, they've just announced the first two cases in um, Atlanta, Georgia, where I used to live before here. <laughs> and they tell you, call your doctor, 
and they go and see them. So they not, <laughs> but they, they 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 I saw the governor do this speech and he said, uh, so and then the, the chief health person in Georgia spoke and she said there was a very catty physician. They arranged for them to have an um a separate exit, a separate entrance to the clinic, and they stayed in an isolated room and then uh exited. And I was thinking that's all very well and good, but they're in the, like, there's just so many things that could go wrong with that scenario, surely. So uh, I just, I don't know whether the US will change that or whether that's Georgia-based information, but here, 100%, if you think that you have coronavirus, you may not, like, of course, if you go, they're not, (laughs) but you you can't go to the doctor. That's what they say. You call this number and someone will come and pick Mm. you up or come and take you in your home. Mm. Hmm. Depending on how you feel. Hmm. So what's the, what's the thing in Qatar? What's the what's the what's the word? So word on the street is that we have three diagnosed cases. Um, but you know, I, I don't know. I really don't know. In Adelaide, we only have one diagnosed case, and that is someone who was known to have coronavirus and was brought in brought into Adelaide oh, to be treated. She came from Darwin, so. The diamond uh, I don't know the details on that one. I'm sorry. But I did read a great article, and I wonder, I'll, I'll try and find the link for the show notes, but I, wrote, I did read a great article of a family that have all had coronavirus bar one of the kids. So mum, dad, one child, other child didn't get it. But they were on The Princess. And um, she explained what it was like, which I think we need to hear more of, and that would probably quell the fear factor right if people go oh okay so I'm probably going to have flu-like symptoms and um, uh, have some respiratory issues with that but I'm going to be okay do you know because I think we've all had a case of the flu where we've been deathly ill and no Nikki your time in Hamburg you appear to have (laughs) I am petrified of the flu and I'm petrified of coronavirus and I'm not ashamed to say it and I'm I am ridiculously terrified of both of them because I've had the flu in Hamburg and I've had pneumonia three times not all in Hamburg but I've also I've just had chest issues the whole time I've been here and I so I think if I get it well that'll be me I'll be the sad statistic but the the thing is is that uh what what people are saying is well uh, what we've learned over the past couple of days from dealing with the health authorities in regards to the school, the more and more that people are getting going to get tested, the more people will have a very mild case. And so the death rate percentage will come down and down and down and down and down right. until at the moment it's 20 times the current flu and they believe it will come down to the same as or even less than that. But it's about who's knowing who's got it versus who's being tested. Yes. And I said, I said to someone, uh, I said, but you can't win a public relations war until, or, you know, the media is so excited about it until you can prove that, you know, all these people have very mild cases. There are thousands of people, hundreds of thousands potentially that have never been tested for it because the case is just very mild and they didn't think that they had it. What was interesting, Nikki, this woman, she said neither of them had a sore throat and her and her husband both reacted to it so differently in that he was one of the people that required the HIV uh, drugs, you know, to treat him and she didn't. And and what the way she described it was didn't get a sore throat but mainly hot, sweaty, fever, um, uh, respiratory issues, 
all done and dusted, do you know, and that you could see the light at the end of the tunnel, which I think all of us could deal with if that was the issue of, you know, I need to go to bed for a week. Um, but then when you start, when she talks about her husband and how he required to have HIV drugs and the rest of it, you're like, hmm, that sounds a little more complicated. <laughs> okay, now I promised Nikki that I would speak to um, uh Eva, who is a doctor in China, she's in Shenyang, which is about 1,100 miles north of Wuhan. And uh, her and her partner uh, went there to join a program where they're training Chinese doctors in Western-style family medicine. Um, and they're also helping staff. Oh, it. wow. Yeah, isn't it? Like I love hearing what people do all over the world, don't you? Like, I know. Yeah. Fascinating. So fascinating. Yeah. Um, so I was asking her, well, how long is the child? Because they have, you ready for it, not one, not two, not three, not four, but five children. And I asked her, how long has the children's school been closed and was work or the office slash clinic also closed and what have been the biggest inconveniences? So she said the elder three are doing school online, so they haven't been that badly affected and they do take Chinese classes and, and have been doing that on video chat twice a week instead of going to school. She said number four is in a little homeschool group with another family next door. Um, and the youngest is in Chinese kindergarten, which um, has not reopened, but the teacher's been posting things every day and they've been checking in daily um, to sort of say, no, we don't have a fever, whatever. Um, so she said the youngest one's probably the one that's the most out of their normal routine. And she's been teaching him at home, joy, oh, joy. Let's all now give a shout out to the homeschoolers. <laughs> yes, go homeschoolers. <laughs> She said the online stuff's not that helpful partly because it's a new concept for the whole country and it takes a while to figure out how to do it well because think about this, Nikki. Imagine the bandwidth in China at the moment because everybody is home online. I said, so I'm guessing uh, the children being at home has meant you've also had to stay at home or have, you, or have you been able to go to work? She said our clinic was open for one day after Chinese New Year Um only to be told it would close, which lasted all of February. We were doing telephone and remote consults and, and some house calls or accompanying some patients to hospital when absolutely necessary. I said, oh, you mentioned that you've had no new cases in your province for two weeks. So they haven't, no new cases uh, in the last two weeks, which I think is um, a good story to hear at this. You, you don't hear these stories from the media at the moment. You only hear of the growing factor. It's nice to know that for two weeks there's been nothing. And she said, well, we're a short nonstop flight from Seoul with lots of Koreans living and working here. And apparently a flight landed last week from there and somehow the passengers all left the airport without being screened. <laughs> and the city officials called us the next day notifying us of anyone who'd recently arrived with a fever that we should follow the current fever and coronavirus protocols. So I don't think anyone here wants round two after all of the precautions up until now. She said, we're not out of the danger zone yet with all the increased cases in South Korea. 
So I asked her about grocery shopping and how that looks and if there were food shortages. And she said their market's been open pretty much since after the Chinese New Year holiday ended, but the hours have decreased. And um, she said it's always well stocked. It's maybe just a little bit more expensive. Um, Car 4 is open with plenty of food. The restaurants are delivering as usual with the usual food apps. Um, To enter the market in the store, you have to check in by scanning a code and logging in your telephone number and getting your temperature checked. She said our little corner shop has had everything in stock as well with maybe more limited selection of some dairy but otherwise no issues. The mall shop started to open slowly last week with Starbucks and Subway and bubble tea shops offering carry out only. So you can't sit inside these places. You've got to take it and run. She said our apartments are closed off all but one gate with visitors having to sign in and get temperatures measured and answer questions about where if they've been to epidemic areas but we've not been restricted from leaving our complex at all. Some places in the city are reportedly more strict. I have plenty of Chinese friends who have not left their apartment for two to three weeks, Nikki, oh, up no. until about a week ago. She said some places don't let you walk in and out, but you can drive in and out if you have a car without any screening whatsoever, LOL. Um, (laughs) I thought one of the things, Nikki, that was interested with that is the whole thing about going to the supermarket, scanning your code, entering your telephone number. Nikki, you've lived in America. I've lived in America. How do you see the Americans dealing with this? I don't. I honestly think that in far less organised societies, and um, I think, look, I don't think Australia would do well with it either, to be perfectly honest. But I don't think if if someone is blocking a mall and says you can't come in without entering your phone number, and then someone says, "Well, I don't like that idea," and you know, it just. I'm just not sure. It's just against the very culture that is ingrained in most um, most Americans and most Australians. I just don't know how Australians Yeah. I think, and in Australia, I think it would be more like cheeky larrikinism. Like, oh, I'm not going to yes. do that. I'm just going to go climb this wall over here because yes. I'm a cheeky larrikin yes. and I'm not going to obey what you tell me to do. Yes. Um, and then may need an ambulance because they fall off the wall rather than have the coronavirus. So I think that each society won't wouldn't cope very well with that kind of structure, but in a different way. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think, I mean, and we're talking massively in stereotypes. This is when our cultural uh, identities really come out, isn't it, of how we cope with this. I think the Brits will be hysterically funny. They will cue and they will make jokes and they will be generally very funny and I'm sure the New Zealanders are all look after each other and be super nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's it's interesting. I'm very so the German government has announced that you do need to stockpile ten days of food. Mm. You should you should be having ten days of food in your living dwelling, whatever apartment, house, etc. Mm. Which of course I because I don't listen to the German radio, but I did notice the pasta aisle at the supermarket completely empty. Right, uh, except for the funny named pasta. Like if you if you don't mind net pasta that has like a, a funny name and a different shape, you can still get plenty of pasta. Right, but the standards, your cannellonis, your spaghettis, your lasagna sheets, your linguine. Oh 
It's gone. But if you want a bit of fusilli, you're fine. Nikki, on that, yesterday I put a post in the Two Fat Expats group saying, okay, if you had to have 14 days worth of pantry food, like food that just can last, what would you have? And fantastic response. I mean, there are people that obviously really think about this because what we have to remember too, Nikki, is we have our fatterati who are living in places like Nigeria or elsewhere that live like this all the time, where if they see, yeah. a, if they see a can of, you know, chickpeas and there haven't been chickpeas for the last three months because they haven't made their way in, well, they will grab those 10 cans of chickpeas and take them home and, and you know, look nurture them and look after them for, for a special day. So I think, you know, we, we are used to being like this. This is definitely how we lived in Libya. Like if you saw certain things, you grab them and put them in your pantry and you always made sure that you had... Um, enough of something because you might not see it again and it would run out and you you know have to make do with something else I always go back to when we lived in Libya you know that was when I lived on my Margaret Fulton encyclopedia cookbook you know the A to Z of cooking which was very much a 1950s style you know cookbook because and then all of those lovely Thai and whatever cookbooks that I had Asian you know once they were useless to me they were not not helpful helpful. so yes this is when we return to basics so what I'm going to do today is pick out the 14 that appealed the most or seemed to get the most uh, uh, attraction from everybody and I will put them together with a shopping list of what you need to buy to make those things and then I'll put it all in a little uh PDF to send out. Um, so, Nikki, I would ask people that if that's something that you're interested in and you'd like to see, go to twofatexpats.com or Kirsty Rice online, and you'll see there's a little way that you can sign up for our email and give us your email address, and I'll get it to you this this weekend for sure. Excellent. Well, there's 300 and something comments on there, so I look forward to your top 14 picks. <laughs> Okay, so Nikki Moffat, we're going to do something different this week. We're starting a new segment because, you know, we like a new segment. We do. <laughs> we're going to have the fat four. So we want four fat expat questions. So Nikki, I get two and you get two. And my first one to you, Nikki Moffat, is what is your expat superpower? You see, that's a great question, Kirsty Rice. And I recently heard that question on a Michelle Obama Oprah podcast and I thought, what is my superpower? What's my expat superpower? And I don't know that I specifically have one, but I would say it's probably if I had to go press to make a choice, I'd say it's experience, which is weird. It's not really a superpower. That's just more a muscle and that's something that I've had to grow. But I think... And it's not personal. It's more a conversational thing. If I meet someone for the first time, I can tell what their expat thing is going to be, like what their problem or what their concern or what their issue is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're basically sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, I've met you before. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, just, I don't mean that in a bad way, but I always think, oh, I, I bet if I move the conversation in this area, direction this is where the outcome is going to be for example I we recently had drinks for grade seven parents 
and I met some parents who just came at Christmas time and they had spent 10 years in Singapore and uh, I want to say Dubai and they've arrived at Christmas in Germany. Now, it doesn't take an expat superpower to work out what's going to be stressful about that but I just said I said I was speaking first to the husband and he said you know my wife's really struggling I said oh is it the weather (laughs) it's that she can't cope with no sunshine after living for 10 years in only sunny locations he said yeah she really is struggling with that (laughs) I said color me shocked um And so, I, I mean, that's a really silly example, but I, I just, that's the most recent one that I can think of. So I don't know, Kirsty, you're also very intuitive, so you probably possess the same superpower that I have. Um, I think with superpowers, I don't know. Yes, I think I think experience is, is, is great, but I think I took this question far more literally, I think, of, okay, well, what was my, you know, my one thing I could do that I thought I could do really well? Um, and definitely I know that I prided myself on on traveling with babies that I thought I had an absolute superpower for it and I do remember hopping on a plane once with three very small children and going from we were on our way from Sydney to LA and I got those children on the plane, organised and asleep within the first, you know, 45 minutes of sort of taking off and had a glass of champagne in my hand and had just started to watch The Queen with, um, I can say, Helen Mirren and was thinking, and I remember this man sort of leaned over and said, you need to write a book about how you just did that because I just watched that in awe of how you got those three small children, you know, jammies fed, sleep go <laughs> but at the same time same flight that was when the uh, pilot came on with his very Australian accent and said excuse me ladies and gentlemen but we've got a bit of debris coming off the plane so we're going to have to turn around and go back it's not what you want to hear <laughs> but I was so debris. focused I never heard that story so focused that I was thinking I don't care you will just keep flying I've got three children asleep (laughs) just keep going anyway we then went on to spend 10 hours in the um, Sydney airport you know and when you've mapped out exactly how many nappy slash diapers you need and how much milk and you're breastfeeding and all the rest of it those 10 hours are crucial (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the scheme of things. Yeah, so I, I think when I was a young expat with young babies, um, that, yes, flying with babies and entertaining toddlers with zero organised activities, you know, living in, in Libya. My uh, daughter actually yesterday sent through a photo. She'd been fossicking around in the back room at the beach house and come across some photos and um, there was... Uh, Greg, my husband, with the two girls in the bathtub in Libya. And they were having a great time. And I said to her, oh, my gosh, I'm just having flashbacks of how much time you spent in the bathtub because we had nothing to do. And, you know, the bath was the most exciting thing we could do. So it would be every maybe three times a day I'd say, 
should we have a bath? And everyone would go, yeah, and jump in the bath. And that was the entertainment because you could just throw in the bath toys and sing songs and, you know, we could kill an hour of doing that. Um, so I think about that. I think that's a superpower. If you haven't gone crazy and you. I think that is a superpower because I couldn't do that. That is. We had nothing, no car, no anything. I think think back now and just go, God, how did I not go make, um, crazy? But it did it did make me think, Nikki, of like, well, what is, what are my superpowers now? Um, and I think I'm probably much harder on myself of searching for that superpower now. As um, you know, I think when you've got you you have those instant things with children of yes, we made it through the day or yes, we got through unscathed or, you know, whatever. There's those markers. And I think now as a an expat woman, um, you know, motherhood is, is just as intense because it's far more emotional now. But, you know, there's a whole other side of me that's work and marriage and, you know, relationships and whatever. And I think, well, what is it? And I, and I, I am imagining that if I was less harsh on myself and asked someone else, they would say I'm creating communities or, you know, writing about expat life might be my expat superpower. Good, good point. Good point. Okay, well, Kirsty, yeah. you've worked in a few different countries in your expat life, but you also stopped having children here and there, mm-hmm. as you've just talked about. How do you explain your career breaks on your resume and in interviews? Good one. Okay, so I think when you're looking at your career breaks on your resume and you're at that period of time where you've got to go and sit down and explain it all to someone, I think be honest but be selective. And when I say selective, you know, they don't need the exact, exact dates. You know, you can work in rough periods and whatever. Um, but you have every right to not give as much information as you don't want to give, but be honest about it. So don't forget to explain your productiveness while you've been away. Um, completing all that admin of an overseas move, it gives you new skills that you didn't have before. So really think about that, like those deadlines you've worked to the bureaucracy you've had to cope with, the research you've had to do, the intercultural skills you've gained, you know, how did that change you in that time and what did that give you? Do you know, I remember my boss in Canada would very proudly tell clients that we went to go and visit, um, you know, Kirsty's had four children in four different countries and look at me in awe because he just thought I was amazing because I'd done this, not that it was just my life um, because he hadn't. He'd had twins in Canada and, you know, that was his life. So this woman that had four kids. So, don't forget that some people are going to find you incredible and, and really, really think about that, what you've gained from that and spin the positive, you know, learn to say, you know, this has given me a chance to sort of dig deep into my career goals and I've built new skills and I've been able to refocus my energy, you know, spin the positive all the time of that, not the negative of uh, my partner moved and I had to go to and I've been stuck at home and I'm just a housewife, you know, or house husband. Yeah. Because that's not it. That's not it. 
There is no just. Yes. Okay, Nikki, what about you? What do you, what do, you do to explain your um, career gaps? Well, I think that all the advice you've just given is is very good and true and right. And I just, I have this argument with myself in my mind all the time about I can say all those things, but it doesn't matter because I, I don't feel good enough do you know, to, to, to yes. carry it off, to be honest. Yes. That's how I feel, ha- have felt in the past. The job I'm doing now I sort of fell into through, you know, through asking and telling people I'm looking for a job, I'm looking for something to do. And ha- having this, even though it's nothing I would have done before, it's nothing that remotely relates to anything I've done before, but even just doing this for this short amount of time, has really helped me get some of that confidence back. So I would say that I could now go in and say, well, I did this and then I did that and then I did this and in the between I did that. So I feel more confident about myself. And that's, you know, it's it's hard because I, you know, I've had big jobs and done, you know, great things, well, not great things, but, you know, I felt that I made a positive contribution to the company <laughs> I worked for and, you know, you're not going to read about it anywhere in a thousand years, but I, I, I have in the past felt more confident about myself and the way I present myself. And so I've, I found going back into workplace now, even for the first sort of six weeks, two months, very tentatively, but I'm sort of getting back into the swing. And I do feel now that I am more confident about explaining that to me. And I know that in my office, like I work with a bunch of millennials, mostly millennials, and I'm sure they look at me and think, what are you doing? Like when I'm your age, I don't want to be doing that job. And I think I am totally fine with that. Like I, I, in the past, yes. I would have felt differently about that. But now yes. I think, no, what I'm doing is what I want to do. It suits what I'm yeah. where I'm at at the moment. And it, it works yeah. for me. It works for my family. And I'm, I'm very happy with that. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. That does happen when you age. And I, of your career expectations and what you're looking for as well. Um, so I think, you know, sometimes when we're younger, we're so hooked on either being the boss or getting further along, further along and being recognised. And I think you lose that because you don't care as you get older because you're like, well, no, I know who I am and who my friends are and I'm, I, I probably don't need this uh, validation from, from the office. It's weird because I don't need the validation, but I before I still had the internal monologue of the um, I don't feel good enough, not not to do my job now, but just in general talking about my career and resume and experience. Whereas now, now I'm back in the workplace, regardless of what kind of workplace it is, I feel that sort of confidence a little bit again about being able to talk about it. And, you know, that internal dialogue, Nikki, it's almost like a body dis dysmorphous isn't it I've I heard this fantastic woman yesterday her name's Natalie she's got an Instagram Instagram site called let me try before you buy and she gets on and you know she'll show you what all these clothes look like on her so you can go oh well I know your measurements I know where you fit I know how that looks whatever she did a little one-on-one yesterday talking about how she had body dysmorphous after being pregnant and having a baby and that one of the things she does to get past it is if she looks at herself in the mirror she covers her face to make herself look at herself like she would look at others because she said she's so cruel to herself but she's so kind 
to others where she thinks, oh, that suits you or you should do a size up or a size down or you look great or, you know, I like the way you've done your makeup or blah, 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 blah. And I think, you know, you talking about you being so hard on yourself with your career breaks and, you know, not giving yourself credit for what you've done, you would never do that to another expat woman. Never, never. I I, I, I understand it. I, it's like, yeah I, yeah, I understand that totally. But I just, yeah. it's an internal thing that I, you know, that I have had trouble with in the past. Yes, yes. Okay, all right, moving along. Nikki Moffat, given all the options available to expats in terms of travel, would you ever go on a cruise? <laughs> Diamond princess. Diamond princess. Look, I, no. And in the past, I my husband has been very, let's do a cruise. Let's do a cruise. I was like, no, you don't understand. I once went on a three-day cruise out of Sydney Harbour with a group of girls for a hands weekend. That's oh, my gosh, a three-day hands weekend. <laughs> you could never, that's the worst introduction you could ever have to cruising. Uh, if you go for the cheap option, the internal, the internal cabin, you know, the whole thing is just like disastrous. Oh. And it just was like a floating RSL and I just did not like it at all. <laughs> and so these people talk about cruises with like windows and, and balconies and that's fine. What if you can't get off? And I've seen the Diamond Princess. And it's look, it's not only the Diamond Princess with 6,000 people who are just stuck on the ship <laughs> oh. for weeks off the coast of Japan. Who knows what they were eating? Um, but it's like they're floating ball pits. I mean, there any <laughs> there, you always hear of cruisers being like isolated because they've got thousand people sick with some sort of stomach bug. Like it's not yeah. like it's, yeah. You know, a cruise is not, I would yeah. not ever do a cruise. Okay, watch this space and like, you know, later on. But yeah. cruises yeah. are not for me. What about you, Kessie Rice? Cruising? Well, yeah, my my husband has, he, he <laughs> laid it on the line before we got married that that was never anything that he would be doing that does not interest him at all. That and caravan parks, I got told, they're both oh. off. They're both off the radar. That that's something I'll be doing with my second husband. <laughs> so uh no, and I have to say, now that we've had all of this uh come to light, uh, you, I didn't realise that they are floating ball pits. I think that's a great expression, Nikki, but um they they're renowned for this coronavirus or not they're renowned for this that everybody gets sick which is amazing given that it's quite often full of old people yeah correct and they have morgues i mean my dad and his wife did a cruise on i don't know what's one of these fancy new ones the queen mary or something mm. and by the time they got from somewhere hong kong to dubai there were 10 people in the morgue <gasps> i mean it's just like it's not it's not old people go on these cruises and they get sick and these things happen and they these ships all have morgues i'm just telling you okay uh back to something okay a bit more serious are british women having a mental health crisis in dubai <laughs> oh yes oh my gosh this article okay 
So it started with the Daily Mail, didn't it? And I think I can't remember the headline. It was something really classy, you know, like expat women are having sex to, you know, stay off whatever. It was shocking. It was shocking. But it basically it was with the Daily Mail and I did a quick Google search the other day and saw that there were eight different news sites that ran with this story. And when there's eight different news sites that are all running with the same story from the same three um, uh, psychologists and whatever, like it wasn't like a groundbreaking news story, it was an article. But you know that it's just good clickbait, that it's going somewhere. And why is it good clickbait? I would guess it's because we just love to kick the boot into expat women. I mean, it fits all the stereotypes, doesn't it? That we're bored, we're drunk, we're addicted to shopping. <laughs> and the, the, the sad thing is that there's some really serious issues in this post regarding sort of postnatal depression and marital abuse. But the idea that expat women fix these issues with cosmetic surgery and sex just seems quite ludicrous to me. And I just, uh, I thought, please don't go and look up the article, uh, people out there, because it doesn't deserve your click. But, um, and don't don't ever click on those things, I would say. Um, it, it came into our Two Fat Expats world, and I think I promptly deleted it um, from the group because I don't want to encourage that discussion because it's not true for us and it's not true for the expat women I know and and when I say that I mean that yes I have plenty of friends that had postnatal depression I have plenty of friends that have become depressed from being expats and being away from their family and friends um, but I also have plenty of friends that haven't they've thrived but that would be the same wherever I lived because if I looked at my group of friends back in Australia who've all stayed in the same place, they have the same issues. They are women's health issues. Um, and I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from how tough this expat life can be, but don't write an article about how we're all drunk, addicted to sex and having cosmetic surgery because that's who expat women are. We're just women, full stop. Uh, Nikki, did you read it? What did you think? I did read it and, I mean, I couldn't, it was so stabbing. I was the one to stab it the whole time I was reading it. Um, I, so women, the thing, women in Dubai away from their support system like family and friends yeah. are unable to cope with the stress and boredom, oh. you know, and they spiral into shopping and drinking and partying. I was like, who writes this and who, who are they talking about? Like, it, sure. There are a lot of people that move to a new country and struggle. They absolutely do struggle. There's there's no doubt about that. But uh, the way they wrote about it, it was just so derogatory. And, you know, that's not how everyone copes. And they are very real me women's mental health issues, as you say. And we need to be more serious about mental health, particularly expat mental health, because, you know, it, it's a real problem and it does exist as it does for everybody, all classifications of people, and as you say, people living and then have never moved also have mental health issues. So, you know, we need to be serious about it and, and not be clickbaity because that was just the most ridiculous article I've ever read. Okay. <laughs> all right, Nikki, three favourite things. We'll do these really quickly because I'm aware that we have been talking for a long, long time. Um, my favourite, favourite thing that I have seen this week is a show called Stateless and it's on ABC iView and it was inspired by the real life story of a German-Australian woman, Cornelia Rau, 
And it's a drama that kind of focuses around four people. And uh, it's a woman who's escaping a cult, a refugee, a father trapped in a dead-end job and a bureaucrat on the verge of a national scandal. And it's kind of how all their lives converge at an immigration detention camp in the desert. Um, Episode one came out on ABC on Sunday night. It's one of those ones we are now all gagging for episode two because it won't be out until this coming Sunday night. So episode one, Kate Blanchett is front and centre of it and she plays the wife of the cult leader. And uh, the she's also the co-creator of the show now the woman who's starring who's like a a virgin air hostess or a Qantas air hostess is Yvonne Strahovski and she's in The Handmaid's Tale you'll spend the whole time going I've seen you I've seen you why have I seen you but I mean it has a star-studded cast Marta Dusseldorp who's in a place called home is in it um, Dominic West from The Wire and The Affair, Jay Courtney from Suicide Squad and Divergent. It is just such a great cast. Um, so this is Kate Blanchett's first move into TV, both on screen and off screen. Her production company is called Dirty Films, which I have seen a couple of times lately where I've gone, oh, Dirty Films, and it's alongside her high school, university and drama school friend Elise McCready. Um, and Elise McCready uh, has said the idea kind of spawned from a conversation they had back in 2014 in Blanchett's kitchen. The exciting news is for all of you who are going, oh, my God, she always recommends these things on ABC iView and I don't get ABC iView and it's another Australian thing. It's not. It's going to be on Netflix later this year because it's a joint uh, deal with Netflix and ABC and it is really good. There's huge cringe factor in you'll hear people say incredibly racist things about people in detention centres um, and you'll think, oh, my gosh, but, yes, I can totally see how this happens and what happens. And all of the stories, all four people, are based on real-life stories. And, yes, they've dramatised them a little bit more to make them more television-worthy and interesting, but they are all based on real-life stories. So you see the... Um, uh, the guy who's come with his family from Afghanistan and is then trying to get on the boat to get to Australia and how that looks for that family. The story of the woman who was uh, taken into a cult and basically loses her mind after being in this cult and jumps in the water, you then see she fronts up in this detention camp. It is a true story. Um, it's, yeah really worth seeing. We haven't seen Asha Ketty's also in this and I think she's going to come into episode two because we've only sort of been introduced to three of the characters so far. It is fantastic. So it's called Stateless. Okay, Nikki, what's one of yours? Um, well, podcast. So uh, I talked before about reading the book Catch and Kill and the book She Said. Yes. And now Ronan Farrow has a podcast of Catch and Kill. So it's the book. He talks about things that happen in the book. He doesn't read the book or anything. Um, plus there are actually new audio extensions of stories from the book. So it doesn't matter if you haven't read the book because it still tells the same kind of story. Um, even though it's touted as a companion podcast of the book, he's obviously at the end of every episode says you should buy the book. <laughs> It's a really good podcast to listen to independent of reading the book. Uh, it has some Australian connection. Um, 
I think we mentioned that last time, one of the execs of the National Enquirer being a colourful former Australian journal with a dubious part. Yeah. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. One other quickly, one other podcast is um, now at work we're doing a big project on Antarctica. We're actually, our company or our organisation is going to, we have not not-for-profit organisation that's going to be presenting at the um, Venice Biennale this year, should the Biennale uh, not be deferred <laughs> because they're deferring a lot of big events in Italy at the moment, yes. um, about the history of Antarctica. So man went first went to Antarctica 200 years ago, <gasps> man, woman, people. And so we, our, we, I work for an architectural-based company and we are tracing the history of all the architecture in Antarctica for the last 200 years, which is incredibly fascinating yeah um, I hadn't even thought about architecture in the Antarctica what a great yeah, well it's, it's, yes it's very cool anyway so in doing that I was started thinking oh Antarctic podcast so I found an Antarctic podcast called ice coffee the history of human activity in Antarctica and it's a guy it's a Kiwi guy and it's him he's written this historical text about you know, the history of Antarctica. And he sits in Antarctica in the outside with surrounded by you can hear cracking ice and you can he stops to talk to penguins wow. and everything. Oh wow. <laughs> a couple of episodes and I couldn't work out whether I was quite into it because I'm really into Antarctica right now or whether it's actually like a really great podcast. <laughs> so but I always say to people if you're interested in anything, there's a podcast for it. And I, there is a podcast on the history of people in Antarctica and it's called Ice Coffee. And one last thing before I finish, I just now, Corona is obviously the big topic. It was the top hashtag on my podcast app when I opened it this morning. And so I pressed the hashtag and there's actually now 13 podcasts specifically named Corona and about the coronavirus and there's 200 episodes in my podcast that's a shame I look Nikki I think just on that and people that are feeling anxious about it I would suggest just don't limit yourself to one story a day and don't get hooked up on it people may have noticed on the two fat expat site we are being vigilant about how much the uh, coronavirus now, how many posts are posts and speculation and we want it to be very fact-based and kept upbeat because, you know, you can choose whether you want to um, stir up the pot, I guess, or if you want to try and remain calm and you know like I, I'd said because I, I have family that are saying to me why are you not sort of getting on a plane and coming home do you know and when when people start asking you those things you're like oh should I be more concerned about this than I am or you know what should I be doing and am I going to be put in quarantine and then then you just read a couple of nice calming influences or or get it out of your mind for a while and you suddenly go no no I mean I had my 17 year old daughter be the calming influence last night which I thought was lovely when she sort of said to me oh mum I wouldn't even think about doing anything until they shut down the school like why would you even 
jump ahead of that you know just 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 relax and just wait and see what happens next sort of thing and I think that's what you need in your life so if you are around people at the moment if you are finding people at the water cooler at work uh, making you anxious or people at that coffee morning are making you anxious maybe just steer clear of it don't click on the 200 podcasts or don't you know read that article or whatever just just you know choose one a new source that you trust and maybe limit what you do because I think it could make you really unnecessarily anxious which we don't I don't want anyone to feel like that no me yeah okay I've got one last one and this is for those who've got kids and they're like I want to watch a movie where two people are nude and bonking or swearing all over the screen while my eight-year-old's there a fantastic a movie called Ride Like a Girl, which is based on the story of Michelle Payne, who was the first female jockey to win the Melbourne Cup. And that is a big, big deal. And this is the story of Michelle Payne. And when I watched Michelle Payne win the Melbourne Cup, um, the, the character I was most interested in was her brother who has Down syndrome and uh, was, was a trainer uh, on the horse that she rode on. And he was so overjoyed with her win. It was one of those beautiful things to watch. And um, so the story is based on her life growing up. Her father, the role is played by Sam Neill. The actual actress is Teresa Palmer, who I think is originally from Adelaide. Um, but... It is a great uh, story and a great um, movie to watch with the kids. Ride Like a Girl. It's um, released 2019. Pretty sure you'll just find it on um, iTunes. Okay, well, good chat. Okay. Gotta go and speak to you soon. <laughs> okay, see you next week, Nikki Moffat. Bye-bye, Kirsty Rice.